Hello and welcome to HIMSCast. While the COVID-19 coronavirus itself has neared 4 million cases worldwide, the impact of the virus extends far beyond that, especially when it comes to mental health. Whether it's grief from the loss of loved ones, trauma from working on the front lines, cohabitation troubles coming to a head on lockdown, or merely the radical lifestyle adjustments we've all had to make, mental and behavioral health professionals are working harder than ever during this crisis, and most of them are doing it from home, even if they have so far avoided telehealth for personal, professional, or financial reasons. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, and I'm joined today by Moby Health News Managing Editor Laura Lovett, Moby Health News Associate Editor Dave Moyo, and Healthcare Finance News Managing Editor Susan Morse. We're going to discuss what we've been seeing since this crisis began in the world of mental health and behavioral health. Laura, Dave, Sue, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jonah. Thanks for having us. So let's start with some of the broad strokes here. What have we been writing about in terms of, of telehealth and, and mental health uh, on the Moby Health News side? So all across telehealth, we've seen this incredible uptick. Uh, you know, we're seeing places like Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic are talking about, you know, their numbers just going up, um, you know, exponentially in terms of telehealth. But we have also seen that in behavioral health, too. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different factors kind of that are play, playing into force now. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, there is the trauma from what's going on in the actual, you know, with the coronavirus. Um, but something that's actually been mentioned at a few different innovation uh, is a few different innovation uh, panels, like the MIT Hackathon. Um, this came up where also like domestic abuse is really rising, and so you know people seeking mental health for things like that and having to do it when someone is you know maybe in the next room or in your household. So we're also seeing a lot of challenges that maybe haven't come up during typical times and having to sort of innovate around that. So we've seen an increase in the need as well as a decrease in the sort of ease and, and logistic feasibility. Definitely an increase in the supply as well. Um, just over the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of virtual care or telehealth vendors who have launched new services. Uh, Heal, for instance, originally into virtual house calls, but now does telehealth. And now also, as of about a week ago, does telepsychology services within the state of California. I know OMADA has been offering its mental health program free for a six-month period as all this is going on. And an interesting one also is that some of these companies are being targeted by uh, larger names in the space. There's reports going around that Optum has been finalizing a nearly half a billion purchase of Able to, which also does virtual behavioral care. Do you think that was uh, in the works before all this started? I mean, always a good chance, but... Uh, you have to think that the timing is playing a role in it, maybe if nothing else other than to bump the price tag up a bit. Sue, so, uh, what have you seen in terms of, of what the government, CMS, private payers are, are doing to make telehealth more accessible and, and sort of get rid of some of those barriers? Yes. Well, the government is the one leading the way on that. Uh, uh, even back in April of last year, 2019, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services gave a lot more flexibility for Medicare Advantage plans to use telehealth and then in Medicare. And um, so it's been a great testing place for how telehealth is working, and it's going very well. And insurers are uh, taking advantage of that. But um, there's a couple of things that... 
uh, in a discussion with that I had with uh, Chris, Christopher McFadden of KKR this week, he brought up a couple of good points that the insurers are waiting to do their 2021 plans. 2020 is already gone. So in their value design of, of their plans going into 2021, they're looking to see how their large employers like telehealth, and apparently they like it very much. And also, but they still need to measure the value of it to see whether it's consistently giving a good continuity of care. So I think they're still very much wanting to do this, but maybe moving at a slower pace than either CMS or large employers. And there's also another barrier in licensing across um, state lines and that uh, they need to know that this licensing is going to exist because without it, uh, employers will have a hard time getting telehealth from from other states. Interesting. And has there been any, uh, along those lines, I mean, has there been any relief offered for sort of the licensure thing? I know during the crisis, OCR has kind of suspended some of the more stringent requirements for HIPAA in terms of using video conferencing software. So I wonder if that if there's also been something similar. Yes, there has been the temporary measures under uh, COVID-19. And of course, um, everybody's wondering what will continue to be to become more permanent after the pandemic has passed. They've even suspended the Ryan Hate Act, which is the, the law that requires providers to conduct individual in-person examinations before electronically prescribing controlled substances. And that's that's been the subject of some debate about how, uh, whether it is a whether it's a legislation that does more harm than good. Um, but as of March, that's been suspended for the duration of the crisis, too. Thank you. I can't uh, speak to that. Um, I haven't done anything on that act. I do know I've heard for behavioral and mental health, but a lot of times patients are sitting in ERs just waiting to talk to, to somebody and, and getting somebody. And I think telehealth, obviously, as Dave and Laura pointed out, will help alleviate some of the time delays in, in, get, in getting help for people who are waiting for it. So let's talk a little bit about um, employers. Obviously, they're in a position here where they're they're dealing with uh, a difficult financial situation, like everyone is, but also needing to respond to this need for mental health support for their workforce. So do we know anything about that response? Uh, everything I've heard about large employers are loving telehealth. They love everything about it. Uh, for one thing, it keeps, um, it, well, before COVID, it kept people, you know, some some of them, some of the workers would just uh, text their doctor or call their doctor from work. And uh, so it keeps them at work rather than leaving for doctor's appointments. I know I've definitely heard anecdotally that employees of larger companies are often getting emails from their HR department just discussing or making them aware of the different resources they have and some kind of telehealth or, in this case, behavioral telehealth program is often included in that list. And, I mean, even to move from the anecdotal to a little bit of data, the report that came out from Teladoc Health uh, on this topic just the other day uh, says that 27% of U.S. employers and 39% of Canadian employers, uh, out of a sample of, I think, 1,500 employees that they talked to, are proactively uh, reaching out to employees with mental health support. Uh, or waiving fees for mental health support or, you know, prompting discussions about mental health needs. 
it probably helps that a lot of these companies are offering it for free for a limited time. Um, I have to imagine that an employer who's strapped for cash is much more willing to include this in their offerings if these companies are giving them free trials, essentially. Yeah, and I, I mean, I assume their hope is that the value will be kind of self-evident and they're, you know, they'll choose to stick with it when it's no longer free, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that there's also been some movement in the world of digital therapeutics um, around some of these mental health topics that's coincided with this situation. Is that right, Dave? Uh, yeah, definitely on the topic of uh, government players trying to lift restrictions and keep things going. A uh, handful of weeks back, I think it was about mid-April, among the several emergency policies that the FDA has released was one that basically said if you're making a digital product that delivers or is a psychiatric treatment and you do not yet have um, 510k clearance or pre-marketing authorization, um, as long as you're working on that, they they set up some basic ground-level barriers so that somebody couldn't just slap together their own digital therapeutic and rush it out to the market. But this essentially seemed for those who had been working with the agency and are definitely looking to put out something that's evidence-based and meets all the requirements, could put it out a bit early. And there's some very interesting uh, language in there regarding access. For instance, that a doctor doesn't specifically need to prescribe these treatments that maybe were being developed as a prescription treatment, so long as the uh, developer of that digital product is telling the user that they should consult with their doctor and they make it clear that they've... uh, made that sort of notification. I know that uh, about, I think it was six days, not even a week after that um, policy came out, uh, Akili put out their very first product. We've been waiting to see what happens as it's been in uh, the submission process for quite some time, but they got things together and put out a sort of tentative launch with the goal that it reaches as many patients as possible so it doesn't require that doctor prescription. And if you're a qualifying family, much like some of these other products we've been talking about, they're giving it out for free. And then I know Laura followed up with another digital therapeutic sweetheart about a week or two later. Yeah, um, paratherapeutics, which actually is um, has a long track record in working with the FDA. Um, they were part of the pre-cert pilot, and they got the first digital therapeutic uh FDA clearance, but um, they rolled out their schizophrenia um, therapy called PAIR-004 a bit early. Um, So that came out a few weeks ago in in late April. And I mean, one of the big questions with this is, you know, um, particularly with something like schizophrenia, we're we're talking about vulnerable patients, and this might really work for them. So a lot of people are asking what happens after those kind of regulations kind of go back into effect. Uh, And so it's for a limited time right now. And most of these are limited rollouts. Um, I know PAIR is working with specific providers to match up patients with this therapy. Uh, But it is kind of a interesting question like will it go back that you know they have to kind of go go through this route again and it'll be taken off the market for a while i can speak a little bit to achilles thought behind that process since i was speaking with uh, their ceo about the topic and he's very much of the mindset that when the time comes and everything's everyone's returning back to normal life and we can start to uh make things go back to normal he thinks the fda is going to come out with another policy that describes uh 
sort of a graceful end to this period where everyone can put out their products a little bit early. Um, I think personally, this is me speculating. I think you might be hoping that uh, their rollout goes well and the FDA allows certain patients to keep their product. But like you said, there's a huge concern. Are you going to rip this out of the hands of patients who it may or may not be helping? One thing that's interesting to me is the impact of this on individual therapists, you know, whether they're in, in private practice or, or, you know, working with a medical group or an association, um, you know, the, the fact that they can suddenly, they can do telehealth without having to worry about some of the things they had to worry about before in terms of reimbursement and regulation, and they sort of have to do telehealth, um, it really, it really kind of pushes it into this level of, of ubiquity and accessibility um, that it's just fascinating to me. I mean, we've talked about this in all areas of healthcare, how telehealth is, is you know, potentially going to just have a huge change in its, in its, uh, the widespreadness of its adoption and then the fact that it's kind of going to become the status quo. But I think it's especially interesting in this area um, where, you know, therapists who might before have sort of said, no, I'm never going to do that. It's way too important to my process to talk to people in person. And now that they sort of have to do it, they, they're figuring out how to make it work. Yeah, you know, I had an interesting conversation with um, Dr. John Torres, who is the head of the digital psychiatry lab at Beth Israel a few weeks ago, and he was talking about, you know, onboarding the physician. You know, what what does it look like for the physician that's different? What do you need to keep in mind? And even just having a specific eye contact on Skype, it looks a little different through telehealth, not Skype necessarily, but on telehealth than it does, you know, in, in person. Um, and even your, your background, what is what do you need to be thinking about? And he was talking about, you know, over years that kind of evolving um, for him. And then now people have to be sort of putting it right away and sort of everything has to be adopted Um Immediately. So it's kind of interesting, those little things that providers have to think about, especially something like, you know, with behavioral health, where so much of it is relationship based. It's not just, you know, tell me your symptoms, but it is based on that kind of trust. And there are definitely um, specific cases that are that are harder than others. So so my mother's actually a, a therapist in LMFT. And she's told me that the heart some of the hardest things are working with children, you know, who really aren't aren't as able to connect, uh, virtually and, and working with couples, uh, where, where the, you know, the kind of dynamics in the room and some of the, the nonverbal cues are, are so important. Yeah. No, I mean, no matter what the situation is, I think that certainly, you know, people are figuring that some therapy is, is better than no therapy. And so they're just sort of pushing through to find a way to do it. Um, I think in, in looking at the future of medicine, and looking at telehealth, I, I spoke to Dr. Joel Diamond this week of To Be Precise, and he was saying, you know more in a drop of blood now than you can with hands-on care in the office. So precision medicine is is moving towards a time when you don't need to be in the office. So, um, you know, for regular care, I think everybody's getting adapting to this virtual uh, care model, and um, it, it, I, I see it continuing, especially with the move to, to precision medicine. So one thing that often comes up for us when we talk about uh, telebehavioral health, telemental health, 
is uh, mental health for healthcare professionals themselves. And uh, obviously, we talk a lot about how physician burnout, physician suicide were, you know, pretty endemic problems even before the pandemic. So what are some of the ways that uh, teletherapy is being used now to help the frontline workers who are, you know, experiencing more than their share of, of stress and of trauma in this crisis? We're actually seeing a really interesting example in Italy. Um, Limbix Italia has um, supplied certain um, field hospitals in Italy with VR headsets, um, and the, through that, people can get emotional and um, support. So it's kind of an interesting example of sort of combining telemedicine, but also combining um, virtual reality, which is sort of one of those um, kind of hot new products to be coming onto the onto the scene in, in behavioral health. And then we're also seeing a lot of free products for healthcare, frontline um, healthcare workers. So in the UK, um, Medical Realities is offering all their resources for free to essential workers. Um, and that's kind of a theme that we've seen. Obviously, there's a ton of free um, apps kind of coming onto the market right now to address COVID, but we have seen some specifically targeted at treating frontline workers. And whether or not that's just a thank you or it's a, you know very targeted um, therapy, it kind of varies and depends on, on each app. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's such a critical need here. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion and a really interesting topic. I think like everything coming out of this crisis, it's something that we're going to have to keep watching and see what happens going forward. Uh, I think some of the big questions coming out of that are going to be, you know, are these changes going to stick? Uh, how much of a change are we going to see even when the crisis is over towards how much behavioral health in this country, how much mental health is done via telehealth, and even how many patients seek mental health care uh, in general. You know, how many people who weren't interested in therapy before find that they are now that it's accessible in this new way and that they're in this new situation under this new pressure. We're going to, as usual, include links in the show notes to some of the coverage we've done around these topics, along with some other resource pages that uh, might be helpful to folks. Thank you all for joining me, and uh, thank you all for listening.